very quickly it was evident that something major had happened. And you can always tell that an event is huge if, if you end up having the, the Russians and the regime denying it using different versions of the story. By early 2017, the Syrian civil war was in its sixth year and retreating from the international headlines. After the outrages over Huta and the high stakes of the disarmament deal, the news cycle had slowly shifted. Since 2014, ISIS had swept with alarming speed across significant portions of Iraq and Syria, publishing grisly propaganda videos of mass executions and threats against the West. Hundreds died in terrorist attacks in Paris, Istanbul, Ankara, Brussels, Jakarta and Damascus. Next to the flashy cruelty of ISIS, the crimes of the Syrian regime had become old news. At the same time, millions of refugees fleeing the conflict and violence in Iraq, Syria and Afghanistan had made their way to Europe, polarizing the continent's pundits, politicians and citizens. Few asked what violence had driven these people from their homes. For some, it was simply refugees welcome. For others, it was protect our borders. Then came Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. The official results are in. The people of Britain have spoken, voting for a British exit, dubbed Brexit. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, we can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. As the West reckoned with its own political earthquakes, few were keeping a close eye on Assad. The disarmament mission was near completion. The process had dragged out well past the initial deadline. Some Syrian military bases had spent years under siege, preventing first the evacuation of chemical agents and then the verification of the destruction of infrastructure. Now, in theory at least, the Syrian chemical stockpile was no more. But as Hossam, Hamish and Dr. Adaraj had helped prove, chlorine, not covered by the disarmament deal, had become the regime's weapon of choice. In response, rather than punish the regime, the powers of the UN Security Council had simply created a new Joint Investigative Mechanism, or JIM, to look into these attacks and, crucially for the first time, to identify the perpetrator. The hope was that truth and transparency could act as a deterrent to further chemical use. But increasingly, Facts established on the ground were challenged on the airwaves, on social media and alternative news platforms. A battle raged between those trying to document chemical weapons use and those claiming that these attacks had been staged or never taken place at all. With Russia more deeply involved in the war than ever before, the struggle for truth and accountability in Syria was getting even more complicated. My name is Tobias Schneider, and this is Nowhere to Hide. 
In September of 2015, Russia formally entered the Syrian war on the side of the Assad regime. From that moment on, Moscow would not only provide Assad with diplomatic support, but with direct military assistance. Russian fighter jets, helicopters, missile launchers, and troops began arriving on the Syrian battlefields. The rise of ISIS allowed Putin to wrap his intervention in anti-terror rhetoric. But it quickly became clear that the prime target of the Russian Air Force was not Islamic State militants, but moderate Syrian opposition groups, and that the prime goal was not to rid the world of violent terrorists, but to defend and stabilize the criminal Assad regime. Most of the Russian airstrikes, as far as we've been able to see so far, have been in parts of Syria, not controlled by ISIL, but controlled by other opponents yes, to the I regime. Agree to see that. So what is happening is They're that backing um, Assad, they effect. are backing the butcher Assad, which is a terrible mistake for them and for the world. Russia also bolstered Assad on another front, information warfare. Through a vast apparatus of state-sponsored broadcasters, public statements, online trolling campaigns, YouTube videos and social media content. Russia and various of its proxies in the West pursued a vicious disinformation war to whitewash the regime's crimes, discredit the opposition and to smear humanitarian and accountability efforts. The White Helmets, a volunteer group that pulled Syrians from bombed out buildings and who took a special role in securing evidence of chemical weapons attacks and other war crimes, would become a special target in this information war. So too would the OPCW and the inspectors of the Joint Investigative Mechanism, the GYM. On the 4th of April 2017, both these wars, chemical and informational, intersected in the town of Khan Sheikhoun in southern Idlib province. Before the war, this small town on the main road from Aleppo to Damascus was known for farming and embroidery. But since the conflict broke out, it had been subject to brutal fighting and bombardment. Around 6.30 a.m. on the morning of the 4th of April, a Syrian fighter jet set out from Sherat Air Base in central Syria and flew some 120 kilometers north towards Khan Sheikhoun. Sukhoi 22 took off from Shairat Air Base, codenamed Quds 1, known to be the squadron commander. The weather condition is calm. This pilot does not conduct these raids unless he is carrying something dangerous, unless he has toxic material. The aircraft took off at 6.26. This is his voice. While unsuspecting families were beginning their day, getting dressed for school, setting out breakfast, getting ready for work, the fighter pilot, codenamed Quds-1, fired a single missile into a residential neighborhood. The missile was loaded with a chemical agent. Allahu Akbar, Khan 
Once again, the Western world woke up to horrifying images and videos of children, women, and men suffocating. It didn't look like a smaller scale chlorine attack. It looked more deadly. In fact, it looked a lot like Huta 2013. Hospitals now being overwhelmed with patients that have been hit by some sort of chemical. This is not chlorine. We do not smell chlorine on this patient. This is not chlorine gas. This is not chlorine. We've seen a lot of chlorine attacks. This patient has clear, clear pinpoint people. Had the regime used a higher dose of chlorine? Had they got hold of new chemical agents? Or had they somehow managed to hide some of the chemical stockpile from the international disarmament team. Local citizen journalist Abdul Qadir al-Bakri hurried to examine the scene. I went with three of my colleagues to the explosion site in the northern neighborhood of the city to take some photos. We stayed at the site for about two minutes and then we left by car. After we crossed 200 meters, one of the colleagues, who was the driver, shouted and said that he had a headache. He also couldn't see well. He had difficulty breathing. So, I drove the car and headed to the Civil Defence Centre. I had the same symptoms as my colleague before we arrived at the Civil Defence Centre. As we arrived at the centre, members of the Civil Defence sprayed water on us. We changed our clothes with clean ones. They took us to the health center and gave us some medications, like atropine. Then they gave us oxygen. Then I called my brother to come and take me to the hospital. One of the doctors at the hospital was Dr. Hazem Najim. In the chaos that ensued, Dr. Najim was determined to do what he had been doing throughout the war save lives, or, at least on this day, try to. It was extremely difficult for us to deal with all of that because we didn't have the capability to face such a thing in our field hospital. In a short period of time, the number of casualties reached over 50. All of them suffered from the same symptoms. Convulsions, frothing at the mouth, and losing of consciousness. All workers at the hospital and the civil defense center were summoned. Our plan was to reduce the effects of the toxic substance on people by taking off their clothes and washing them. We couldn't treat such a large number of injured people. However, we managed to give atropine to some of them. But unfortunately, we had only about 20 ampules, which would barely be enough for two or three patients. Meanwhile, in Istanbul, Egyptian journalist Karim Shaheen was watching the news unfold on social media. Very quickly, it was evident that something major had happened in Khan Sheikhoun. There were a lot of images and videos that were being published of, of people being rushed to, to hospitals. And then there were images of telltale signs of a chemical attack of children and men and women kind of frothing at the mouth and, and choking to death. You know, images that people who, were, who had covered the Huta massacre will have also, you know, remembered. Today, Karim is the Middle East editor at New Lines magazine. But in April 2017, he was working for the British newspaper The Guardian, covering Syria and the wider region. As more and more scenes of horror 
emerged from Khan Sheikhun, Karim reached out to his contacts in the region. He also began dissecting footage and the competing versions of events that were already clamoring for attention on the internet. By the late afternoon, it became very clear that this was uh, potentially a chemical attack, and this was obviously uh, huge. And, um, and and you can always tell that an event is huge if, if you end up having the, the Russians and the regime denying it using different versions of the story. Uh, so, so they were both denying it. But I think at the time, the regime said that they hadn't bombed the area at all, whereas the Russians were saying that they had bombed the chemical uh, weapons facility that then leaked out and led to the deaths of civilians who were around the area the rebels were running this chemical facility. A local Syrian rebel group reached out to Karim and offered to escort him to the site of the attack. By now, Syria was ranked the most dangerous place in the world for journalists to work. There had been multiple, sometimes very public cases of kidnapping and assassination of Western journalists in rebel-held Syria. Hundreds of local Syrian reporters had also been killed while reporting across the region. The rebel group offered Karim protection and would coordinate his travel with Turkish border guards to get him into the country. Karim agreed. At the time, there were supposed to be a number of other journalists who were also going to cross the border, but unfortunately, all of them backed out. Uh, they, they didn't feel it was safe enough for them to, to undertake the trip, particularly with the possibility of, uh, you know, in addition to the potential kidnapping, especially if you go in as a big TV crew, but also the potential of subsequent airstrikes on the area. I didn't tell my editors that the others had pulled out and ended up um, crossing the border the following evening. And then in the morning, drove all the way to Khan Sheikh. The journey took him through a haunting landscape. I remember just being absolutely breathtaking by just how stunningly beautiful uh, the place was uh, and how heartbreaking it, it was to remember what such beauty had also endured. Uh, you know, we drive through some towns that had, there, were, there were no towns where there wasn't a building that had been bombed on, uh, you know, on any particular street. Every street had a pockmarked building or a building that was partially destroyed or completely destroyed. Uh, you could see in the distance some uh, smoke rising from parts that had been recently bombed. When Karim arrived in Khan Sheikhun, he went straight to the impact site. It was around 48 hours after the attack. The first place we went to, obviously, was the site of the attack itself. There was a hole in the ground. There was, you know, the remnants of part of the, the missile that, that, that had landed there. There were a bunch of people gathered. I, I believe they were trying to collect some samples for investigators. Next, Karim visited the hospital where the victims had been taken and where horror had compounded horror. After uh, the attack had happened and, and victims were kind of rushed to the hospital, uh, the hospital itself came under conventional bombardment. There, there was one particularly salient detail that was it was very heartbreaking. And across from the entrance of the hospital, uh, there was a small shed. The shed itself was bombed and collapsed on top of the victims who had already died. And people there were talking about how they had been martyred twice, you know, how they had died in, in the chemical attack and then been bombed again in their death. This kind of strategic targeting of health workers and facilities, particularly in the wake of an airstrike, remained a tactic of choice for the Assad regime and now for its Russian allies. A tactic designed to disable the emergency response and maximize fatalities. I asked if I could go to the local graveyard. It was so extraordinarily sad 
uh, to see so many freshly dug graves. You know, the earth had just had been disturbed because all of these gravestones were new and fresh and some hadn't even been filled yet. In total, 89 residents of Khan Shaykhun were killed in the chemical attack of the 4th of April 2017. 541 were injured. Two days after the attack, the Turkish government announced the results of its official autopsy. The cause of death? Sarin. But for the first time, his outrageous actions also met an unprecedented reaction. My fellow Americans, on Tuesday, Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad launched a horrible chemical weapons attack on innocent civilians. Using a deadly nerve agent, Assad choked out the lives of helpless men, women, and children. Just three days after the attack, on the order of President Trump, the U.S. Navy fired 58 Tomahawk missiles against Sheirat Air Base, the same base that had launched the fighter jet towards Khan Sheikhun. It was a swift and bold move in response to a complex Middle East crisis which has dragged on for six long years. A barrage of American cruise missiles directed at a Syrian airbase after an alleged chemical attack by Syria's president against his own people just two days earlier. It was the first time the US intervened militarily against the Syrian government for a crime it had committed against its own people and made for a swift display of force against Assad. But at the same time, observers questioned just how effective one strike on a single airbase could be in deterring such a defiant regime. They noted too that the Trump administration had communicated its plans to Russia in advance of the strike and that Russia had certainly prepared its allies for the incoming missiles. In the end, the strikes inflicted medium damage on the airbase itself and spared the country's likely surviving chemical weapons stockpile. In fact, just hours after the strike, Syrian warplanes again took off from Sheirat Air Base and again targeted the town of Khan Sheikhoun. To this day, many Syrians and many international observers consider the US strikes more show than substance. The US response to the chemical attack was not enough. It was an embarrassing response. The US wanted to say that they had replied because the red line of not using chemical weapons was trespassed. The real response should be a deterrent one to the Syrian regime through bringing Bashar al-Assad to court and putting him on trial or send him to the International Criminal Court. Not through launching some missiles aiming at Shairat Air Base. Bashar al-Assad on trial for war crimes is a remote, if not impossible, prospect. But to even begin to forge that path towards justice, the gym investigators needed to deliver a forensic report on Khan Sheikhoun. They needed to prove that it was indeed the regime fighter jet that had dropped the missile on the town, 
that it was that missile that created the crater on the ground and that the missile contained the sarin that was found in the victim's post-mortem examination and that that sarin belonged to the Syrian regime. And they needed to do all this amid a cacophony of competing claims and wild conspiracy theories about what had happened in Khan Sheikhoun. Stefan Mogul is a chemist and chemical weapons expert who at the time was on the leadership board of the gym. Okay, um, my name is Stefan Mogul. I'm uh, a chemist uh, by formation. I started entering the chemical weapons business in, in 97 by becoming an inspector at the OPCW. Um, I did it for three years. Then I was head of the OPCW laboratory for five years. Stefan was well aware that there were radically different versions of the events in Khan Sheikhoun. And I knew that was going to be a challenge. It, it did become clearly more difficult than I had anticipated because Jim too became further politicized. I believe there were a number of parties with a vested interest that had reason enough not to tell the full truth or nothing but the truth, let's put it that way. Which meant for us as the gym that we had to be very cautious. There were several actors that had presented scenarios of how this event had occurred, or there was the United States that had presented a scenario, uh, Syria had presented a scenario, uh, Russia had presented a scenario. There were uh, self-appointed experts, particularly in, in, in the internet, that had presented scenarios how this incident may have occurred. And all these particular scenarios we took on for our investigation plan. That was our starting point. And then we were trying to gather information to see if, if any of these potential scenarios would hold up. By now, the disinformation machine was in overdrive. All over the internet, amateur fabulists came up with elaborate theories for how the entire attack had been staged. Others claimed the attack was real, but the result of a rebel false flag operation. Some famous voices weighed in, including prominent academics and aging journalists who wrote extensive treatises, arguing that the incident had been the result of a controlled release or a strike against the quote-unquote terrorist headquarters. All of these were, of course, bogus. Even the official accounts of the Russian and Syrian governments did not align. But for those in charge of the disinformation campaign, consistency wasn't the point. Instead, the goal was to muddy the waters to the point where observers might reasonably conclude that the facts of the matter were contested. To avoid adding fuel to the conspiracy theorist fire, Stefan and his team assessed all evidence that was presented to them. We had decided early on that in the collection of the information, you can call it the collection of raw data, that we would just take everything we could find and what we could get. We were not refusing particular information given to us just because it came from a certain party. They split the team into a collection and a forensic unit, which poured over every piece of evidence in excruciating detail. 
I can take a basic example. If you get a photograph or if you have a video, these things can easily be manipulated today. If you still have the metadata of the photo and the video, it's easier to confirm if this information has been manipulated or not, if it's authentic or not. Uh, if you don't have that, then you need the support of, of experienced forensic institutes. And, and sometimes they may have to check it frame by frame to see that no manipulation actually has taken place. An initial challenge for the investigation was to prove that the crater on the street of Khan Sheikhoun on April 4th had not been there the day before. At one point, we, we had a bit of a breakthrough. We got original video sources from two people that had filmed the air attack at that particular uh, time in the morning. Based on the pictures and plumes, plumes are clouds of smoke after explosions, Forensic institutes could help us in confirming where it was, uh, the location. We could confirm the time because of the original metadata of the videos that we received. And there was also there were elements of sound in the recording of the video, the proof that there was an airplane in the air and there were explosions. That was very important evidence. And um, then the gym eventually was able to get access to, to satellite data where we could confirm that this was authentic and that, let's call it the hole in the ground, you know, the hole in the ground was not there on 3rd of April, but it was there after 4th of April. They also tested various environmental and biomedical samples collected by opposition groups as well as by regime agents from the site of the attack as well as from survivors. What we then did is we said, well, we have now these original precursor chemicals that were removed from, from the stockpile from, from Syria. We have now these results from sarin released in country. Can we, with experiments, see whether there is a link between the two? Can we say the stockpile chemicals were the source of the sarin that was ultimately released in Kanjiko, or not? And we then test a designated laboratory to perform a whole series of experiments for us. And uh, these experiments then showed that what we called the marker chemicals, that first of all, they were also present in the precursor. And based on that, we said it is very likely that the sarin that was made and released in Kanjikun was made with original stockpile, as was samples were taken from in 2014 by the OPCW. This was the smoking gun. Nobody had previously noted the presence of this marker chemical. It was the fingerprint that connected the regime's stockpile to the Khan Sheikhoun attack. And just as important, investigators could now go back and check previous samples from earlier attacks for the same marker chemical. It proved, without a doubt, 
that the sarin used in Khan Sheikhoun, as well as previous attacks, had originated with the Syrian government's stockpile, which the Assad regime was adamant had never fallen out of their control. In October 2017, half a year after the attack, the Jim released its final report on the Khan Sheikhoun chemical attack. The 39-page report, co-signed by Stefan Mogul, detailed eight different scenarios that had been investigated. It concluded with confidence that the Syrian Arab Republic is responsible for the release of sarin at Khan Sheikhoun on the 4th of April 2017. But just two days prior to the report's official publication, Russia used its veto power at the UN Security Council to block the extension of the gym. Without the Russian vote, there would be no mandate for Stefan and his colleagues to investigate chemical weapons crimes in Syria. The gym expired in November 2017. It had been the most powerful mechanism for the investigation and attribution of chemical attacks to date. But the end of the gym did not spell the end of chemical weapons attacks or of the vicious smear campaign that accompanied them. Supported by Russian disinformation agents, conspiracy theorists continued to paint first responders as bloodthirsty jihadists and OPCW investigators as corrupted Western agents. Over the following two years, the regime would resume its ceaseless campaign of chlorine use along every front line of the war. The worst of these attacks occurred almost exactly one year after Khan Sheikhoun, when a chlorine canister was dropped onto a residential building in the Damascus suburb of Duma, suffocating more than 40 local residents who had sought shelter in the basement. Again, the world was outraged, and again, the US struck regime targets, this time together with the UK and France. Since then, we have recorded only one further chemical attack in Syria. On 19th May 2019, on a remote front line in northwestern Syria. But as the chemical campaign has subsided, Syrians' battle for truth and for justice has only just begun. With the expiration of the joint investigative mechanism, Russia's continued protection of the Assad regime, a hyperactive network of misinformation, and the fatigue of international attention, it has fallen on individual Syrian lawyers, activists, and survivors to piece together all the evidence and testimony and to carefully build criminal cases. Where international mechanisms have fallen short or failed, it is their diligence and their determination that stands as a last hope for justice. Nowhere to Hide is presented by me, Tobias Schneider, and written and produced by Karam Shamali, Eliza Apperly, and Inge Bakri. Sound design and composition by Benjamin Nash. Podcast illustrations by Molly Krabappel. Cover image design by Sonia Sukrobova. Special thanks to our communications team, Katarina Nachba, Amanda Pridmore, and Ilya Sperling. The Nowhere to Hide podcast and associated research is supported by the Canadian Department of Foreign Affairs. If you want to learn more about the use of chemical weapons in Syria, go check out our website at chemicalweapons.gppi.net. See you next time.